Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Alex Wilhelm and I am joined each and every week by the fine Danny Crichton, TC's managing editor. Danny, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, Alex. How are you doing? I'm full of pep, actually. I had uh, I had more caffeine today than I'm supposed to have. I think you're on your sixth Red Bull. No, actually, I did. I Here's a factoid. I did buy a four-pack of Red Bull, and I saved them so I could have one each equity. And this is my first one I take it out of the fridge. I'm very excited about it. I'm 12. That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> All right. Uh, Natasha, you are here as well. You are one of our venture capital reporters. And uh, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I had one coffee, no Red Bull, but looking forward to CBD later. <laughs> <laughs> an essential product in these trying times seriously i can't sleep without it these days yeah that's why california is still better than the east coast in a number of ways but putting that aside let's talk about some new funds now there is uh lightspeed i'll just tell you the news lightspeed raised some money uh we we weren't sure if we cared but we think there's enough kind of around this that it matters so danny can you get us through like the couple of small facts about this new fundraise from lightspeed yeah, Lightspeed raised three funds for a total of $4.2 billion. So they, they raised about $900 million for an early stage fund, $1.8 billion for a growth stage fund. And then, you know, everyone kind of raises these opportunity funds. But what was unique was they raised $1.5 billion to double down specifically for their international portfolio. So, so they, Lightspeed China was a thing, and I think it's been less of a thing, but it, it, they have a long history of being in China or, as well as around the world. And so it looks like Lightspeed is looking to put more money behind those companies. Now, China venture capital velocity has slowed dramatically, but this fund, I presume, has been in the works for a while, Danny. I mean, like, this is, it takes a long time to raise $4 billion. When do you think they started to raise this, this bucket of money? I would assume a couple months ago, you know, late, late, late 2019. Just a couple of months. Yeah, I don't, I don't, even for this scale and for these funds, you know, particularly for these opportunity funds, they're actually, from what I hear, relatively easy to fundraise for because you're actually going out with names of companies that you're intending to invest in. So you say, hey, ah. uh, LP, I have six portfolio companies coming up due. We're expecting $100 million here, $200 million here, $300 million here. We've already sort of bucketed $800 million, you know, a billion bucks. Do you want to in on that? And a lot of LPs, you know, sometimes the LPs are going to be different because, you know, they may not like those companies or they may, may like those companies. But you know, it, it, it's basically a double down on early in growth and then the opportunities you tend to go around a little bit more. I think that like that's part of the reason I was interested to see how it was framed in a couple of the stories I read about the new fund. It seemed pretty based on them giving some positive signals that they're still investing through coronavirus. And this is proof as to why. How much will what percent will be used to double down on current investments? Like how much is their appetite right now? and Or how much are they just trying to say like, you know, we have good news, so we're going to put it amongst all this bad news. Yeah, well, I think maybe they're trying to just like put some branding on it so they don't look completely out of out of touch mm. in the current kind of crisis era. But it's a good point, Tosh. I'm curious, though, about how many more of these we'll see total. You know, one thing that I've heard from a couple different people in the VC space is that LPs, the people who give money to venture capitalist funds, are a little bit overexposed to venture because venture has done well, boosting the amount of their assets, if you will, in venture up a little bit. And private markets have come down, so now venture looks even a little bit bigger. And maybe that means they won't put as much money into new venture funds. And also, the economy is not doing so good. Put the two together, and we may not see another billion-dollar fund freshly funded for some time. And so that's why I wanted to keep this one in the roundup because it could be the last one. It probably isn't, but it's going to be among the you know trailing off end of that. Speaking of things that are trailing off the end, crypto. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't. I couldn't think of a polite segue there. <laughs> That's mean, Alex. 
You, no, you've been I kicking know. on blockchain for what, three years now? No, way longer than that. But, but, but serious news. So Andreessen Horowitz, it was reported uh, in the Financial Times, is looking to raise $450 million for a second cryptocurrency fund. I believe the first one was in 2018. It was around, what was it, $300, $350 million, uh, 350 and it was sort of raised right at the tail, you know, as crypto winter was happening, they raised. So I actually imagine that it might actually perform decently well. Like they weren't investing in 2016 when it was during the, the chaos years, if you will. But it, it to me, it's a little bit bizarre because we, we've actually covered crypto. Well, we had a couple of companies last week, but to me, it's still a strangely like dormant space. Like I, I don't see anything, haven't heard a lot about it. And and from a fintech perspective, like a huge number of fintech rounds have gone through, none of which were blockchain related whatsoever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we grabbed some data about this because we were kind of curious, you know, what is going on with crypto? Because I, I have not paid a close attention to crypto since like 2017, probably. So Coindesk and CB Insights had some data uh, in 2019. There were 15 fewer deals than 2018. So a total of 807 deals, more than I expected, to be totally honest. But there was, uh, but actually, dollar volume dropped a lot from uh, 4.2 to 2.8 billion. So we're seeing some changes there. But you know, certainly, I will say that is more activity than I expected. So points to the crypto world. And if you've been watching the prices of cryptos move, Bitcoin is up around six, seven k right now. So I think roughly flat on a year-over-year basis. And stocks are down. That makes crypto look reasonably good. I don't stay on this too long. If they close the fund, we'll talk about it. But in the meantime, crypto fans, you got something good. I have one data point, though, that made me feel a little less surprised when I saw the new that their plans to raise a new fund was that they launched this crypto school, this free crypto school in December, I think. And to me, I, I, I laugh because I think that it's partly them trying to create hype around it, <laughs> something that hasn't been hyped. But also, there's probably very good deal volume that they can get from that. And it shows them as a very like easy target for, you know, spicy startups to come to them. Yeah, I think a lot of investors that invest in crypto tend to do it kind of on a pure play basis. That's their focus, their specialty. One VC told me that's hard to do crypto deals if you don't focus on it. And so that's probably why we don't see a lot of generalist funds approaching crypto. But we're going to go down from 4.2 billion to 450 million, now to 36 million. The smallest fund is, uh, Natasha, help me out here, Corrigan Ventures? I think it's Corrigan. Corrigan. Yes. So Corrigan Ventures launched, launched a 36 million fund focused on leading seed stage companies. The interesting part here is that it's their first fund that is separate from its parent, which is a real estate company. So to me, that that resonated because all of a sudden it doesn't just have real estate in its in its, you know, in its ears. <laughs> now it has other LPs with other thoughts, even though they've invested outside of real estate in recent years with with this new fund, I expect to see more of it. I talked to their new partner, Aubrey Pagano, and she didn't mention real estate once during our call. It actually wasn't until I had taken a second to, to talk to Danny about the the fund and the firm to, to hear more about their real estate focus. So I think we're going to see some new things from Corrigin. I'm, I'm excited to see that. I love seeing new seed funds. It means there'll be new companies coming up to talk about in five years when they get big. And we're going to talk about a couple of big ones now. We have so many rounds this week. Actually, we're going to just kind of like get through as many as we can and stop the show whenever we kind of run low on time. <laughs> Sounds so good. So if, if your favorite round doesn't make it, we tried. Uh, we just, I mean, there's just so much happening, including some breaking news on Thursday that Stripe has closed, raised, it's done, a $600 million investment at a $36 billion valuation, which sounds super impressive. But keep in mind that that is a flat valuation from its preceding $250 million round from last year. So it's Pre-money valuation stayed the same, and its post-money went up. 
by 600 million. Danny, did I do that math correctly? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, and it claims to have $2 billion on its balance sheet. Very, very good. Stripe was, was supposed to go public in like 2019, according to the, the chattering classes. And then 2020 was on the books, and now it's not. So is it ever going to go public, Danny? I, I'm just, when, when will this theoretically great company actually show us? I mean, I think that's a question for a lot of you know folks here. I mean, to me, it makes total sense to raise additional capital in this environment. Um, obviously, a lot of Stripe's companies are very small businesses. Obviously, they have larger businesses, but it's a tough economy. Payments go down when people don't buy, and they're making transaction fees. So if there's no sales, there's no fees. One of the interesting things, uh, I, I didn't actually do the math, but uh, I have to imagine with 600 million new capital, 250 in the last round from the Series G, the 2 billion, I guess, counts part of the float? I didn't actually look this up. But I, I have to imagine, like, where's this $2 billion coming from? It's not a profitable business, presumably. So so I have to imagine that part of the math here is like, there is a float in which they're taking payments from customers, but they don't necessarily disperse that to to merchants, you know, at the exact same time. And so, so you know, there's a little bit of that on the balance sheet as well. Well, whatever the case is, even if we just took the $600 million by itself, they do have comfortably north of a half billion dollars of cash to see them through whatever might happen. And I have not heard enough that I trust on Stripe's current performance to have an opinion about how it's doing. But I think your read, Danny, about the small business market is pretty good. I, I have a question and I might be completely off, but I, I've been seeing from Stripe customers on Twitter just how how harsh Stripe's new underwriting policies have been with repayments. Uh, the, the dynamic I'm talking about is that it's moving a lot of businesses to high risk because it, I guess it can't afford to have everyone as normal risk because of coronavirus. Yeah, so, so uh, and, and particularly on that front, I mean, there have been a lot of complaints that, you know, because of the risk modeling, and then I believe Stripe actually introduced a new higher tier set of fees mm. they're migrating to. So their existing co- companies were, were sort of grandfathered into the old fee structure, and now there's going to be new fees for new companies, and that grandfathered price will go away. And so, you know, increasingly we're hearing stories about people moving from Stripe to PayPal, Stripe to Braintree, Stripe to Phoenix, it really just kind of depends. It depends on where you are in, in the marketplace. But, you know, look, I think Stripe is doing really well. The fact that they're able to hold a flat round despite, you know, the global macro uh, situation. And, and not just a flat round, but also to raise a lot more money than the last round. You know, the last one was 250 This one's $600 million. So it's a really good sign they're able to pull in the capital. And keep in mind that not every famous unicorn keeps their valuation intact. Airbnb, one of its uh, debt rounds, the the structure was that it, the shares converted like an $18 billion valuation, far below what it was hoping to go public at. So we're seeing some companies have to give ground. And to Denny's point, Stripe didn't. It got to just kind of stay flat. And uh, I finally get to say, guys, flat is the new up. Oh, God. There we go. All right. I've been waiting for that to be true for so long. I'm glad the Red Bull kicked in right at that moment. There you go. There you go. If you divide 36 by 4, you get 8. And that is the number of billions of dollars at which Robinhood is said to be raising a new round. I... I that, that was, was about five times more math than we can have on an equity podcast. It's like there's so much math happening. This so here, here's a problem with equity. Just so everyone knows what happens. Danny takes this midday nap and I roll in <laughs> at like 100 miles an hour and he's in like second gear getting up to like 25 miles an hour. And Tosh is just stuck in between us going like, why can't they be on the same page energy wise? And that's the show. Um, Robin Hood is said by Katie Roof, actually, over at Bloomberg, a, an alum of this show to be raising funds at an $8 billion valuation. Tosh, I'm kind of curious, what was your first reaction when you saw this? Because I was a bit surprised. I think the third graph says that a final deal hasn't been reached and definitely could not happen. Definitely may not happen. May not happen. And so I'm taking it with a grain of salt, seeing that Robinhood's volatility that we covered may not have translated as aggressively to investor trust in the company. So if investors do 
end up giving Robinhood new capital, it'll be good for the company and it'll signal that, you know, they're going to be business as usual in some way, probably business better. You know, after the outages, I thought they were going to see a stronger backlash from mm-hmm. users. But um, you and I wrote a piece about fintech and we found out that a lot of these companies that are helping people invest or save money are seeing a boom in usage. M1 Financial out of Chicago is seeing the same thing. A lot of other companies as well. And Robinhood gave us some stats that in March, customers traded 3x compared to Q4. And also in March, they saw 10x net deposits compared to the monthly average. So they're raising this money not after an outage and a position of weakness, but actually from a position of growth, which is a bit of a surprise. Danny, what are your thoughts here? No, I think it's a classic example of like all news is great news. Like, you know, all the the the, the crashes, the the outages in, in a couple of weeks ago, you know, Robinhood was in the headlines for, for weeks at a very critical time in which people were looking for stock apps. And it just so happens that like, you know, you would think like, gee, outage, don't want to go there. But if you don't know where to sell your stock or, or what to do, the fact that that was sort of the, the dominant story in two of the most intense trading weeks we've seen in the markets in years probably did more to benefit Robinhood than we ever expected. And so my, my guess is it actually drove the value significantly higher having an outage. And that's sort of the irony of security going on there. And we're, our minds are blown. Alex is angry now. <laughs> And, I'm uh, <laughs> I won't. I don't completely disagree. I feel like my friends, which is a small pool of people that I'm not going to take as like their word is Bible, but my friends have been downloading Robinhood as a result too of just wanting to care more about their personal finances and co. So I think that people, yeah, I think that it felt more dramatic in the moment, maybe from the journalism side, but not from the consumer side. People were pretty mad though. Like I, I was reading forums of traders during those days, and they were pretty pissed. But I mean, apparently they didn't take their ball and go home. They stayed, uh, which they all claimed they weren't going to do. So, And I also think that the, the UX experience for Robinhood still remains among the best among stock trading mm-hmm. apps. So if you want to go somewhere else, you suddenly, you know, I have my stuff as Vanguard. And it's it's like, wow, this is a 1990s like website with buttons that don't really click and don't really work. And so, you know, just the delight that comes with having a great app it is a competitive moat. And I think Robinhood's hold, held on to it. I I have to agree with that 1000% because I have Vanguard and Fidelity because I've worked at different places at different 401k setups, you know, whatever. They're both terrible. They're, so they're really bad. terrible. Like they're they're just, among the, they're just god awful. Trying to rebalance manually, which is something <laughs> that I do because <laughs> I refuse to pay a quarter, you know, 25 basis points for a rebalance service. Vanguard makes it extremely hard to exchange funds every three months. I, I love every element of that. We can't get into why that was so nerdy. We have to move on, but that was a delight. <laughs> but talking about equity and talking about cap tables, Andreessen Carta has been rumored, uh, thanks to uh, Katie Roof and a, a team of folks at Bloomberg, to be raising funds at a $3 billion valuation. This is this is cool. A couple of reasons why. One, eShares became Carta. Carta has grown out of being a relatively single service company into being a, a, a broad platform of services. I'm a Carta user. I think it's fantastic. I think it's a cool a cool company. And this news comes after Carta cut some staff. And so we're, we're seeing this company at, at, a, at a bit of a crossroads. Um, Tosh, can you tell us a bit about the layoffs? Yeah. So, you know, right before this news was broken, the CEO, Henry Ward, posted this blog post saying that they're cutting around 161 employees due to slower economy, potential decline of customers. You know, Henry's getting a lot of love on Twitter for his post. And I agree, just especially from like, we've all been covering layoffs recently. There, there, There's no great way to do it. Seeing the way that he was transparent about it, I think does deserve some claps. So claps. 
the the interesting parallel between this and potentially raising a new round is if this round does close, which it hasn't yet, it just shows that Carta is cutting its costs. It didn't cut employees out of out of anything other than like wanting to slim out, slim down operations, I think. So I think some people think that it's a weird parallel between raising around and cutting people, but actually I think it makes so much sense, like trying to make their, you know, business more efficient from all ends. Yeah. And they weren't the only company that we saw undergo layoffs this this week. There were a number of unicorns, companies worth over a billion dollars. They cut staff. Open door also removed some people. And then uh, our old friend Zoom, not Zoom that you use for video chatting, but Z U M E. The erstwhile robotic pizza delivery company that, oh my gosh, Danny, I'm going to butcher this. They moved into compostable pack packaging. Is that right? Compostable pizza boxes, which with 200 less staff might be more like uh, compostable cardboard. Just, oh, man, the jokes in the show. It's, it's 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 really tough to look at what has happened at this company. But let me let me step back to Carter because one of the things that I, I think is really surprising is is to both see an increase in valuation, but they, they laid off 16% of the staff. Like, we're not, like, talking about a trim here. You know, mm-hmm. 16% is, like, to me, the growth. Like, that that is a signal that they don't see growth in their customer base. They're kind of bringing the numbers back down. You're not trying to target a, a doubling of the workforce in the coming year or something like that. You know, to me, it, it, it's a little bit strange because, you know, uh, uh, Henry was uh, quoted as saying, we exist only because our customers exist and allow us to serve them. And when our customers suffer we suffer too. How does the valuation go up potentially? How do they raise more money if their customers are suffering? They're laying off 16% of the staff. Like, I just don't understand that, that magic. It, it like, it does make sense. Like to me, that's part of the, the selling tactic here is, Hey, we can cut expenses. Maybe we're shooting for profitability. And now you can actually believe there's a path to an IPO or an exit, but it, it's a little bit dichotomous to say, gee, everything's great, but gee, everything's terrible. And we have to like reduce expenses. And maybe like some of the potential investors in this upcoming potential round are are pressuring Carta in some ways. To, yeah, to Danny, your point, get get to a point of profitability. So this might just be a reaction as well. One thing that I heard from a founder who I won't name because we were just talking between the two of us was that he was looking to raise a new round for his relatively early stage company. And investors were asking him, you know, why are you raising money now? What are your goals? What are your targets? And one of the things he said was, I want to make sure I keep all my people. And they were pressuring him to be, to kind of commit to being open to doing layoffs before they invested because they wanted to make sure that he was willing to cut. And so I don't know if that's the case here at all, but that does, that story does come to mind as something that I have heard from someone that I trust who wasn't lying to me. Um, but on the point about the confusion between the two that Danny was trying to highlight there and, and did a very good job, uh, I'm struggling a lot with what I hear from private market investors versus what I'm seeing in the public markets. Like, I mean, Looking at the markets right now, all three major indices today, Thursday afternoon, are up, and everything in the private markets is on fire. And I can't figure out which is the real economy, and if there's not, you know, some dissonance there that doesn't quite add up. Um, it's it's never it's always interesting to live through chaotic times, but it doesn't always mean things make sense. And so there's a lot of stuff that I, I can't quite square. Um, shall we do uh, Airbnb, Danny? What's uh what's the uh, What's the latest from our friends over there? It's another week, another billion bucks. You know, it's like uh, another debt deal. Uh, I think this is what's interesting here. So there is some structure on some of this debt. We've talked about this in the past. I think I think this also had similar structure. I think what's interesting is that they are going down the debt road, which which is sort of a stopgap, right? Because ultimately, you know, Airbnb, again, is a fees-driven marketplace. And so without actual bookings going through the platform, there's no actual revenue. So I'm actually really confused where the debt kind of gets collateralized. Like, are you collateralizing against the value of the marketplace? 
Are you collateralizing against against what? It's not a SaaS business. You don't have annualized contracts where you already are guaranteed a certain level of revenue for the coming year. In fact, Airbnb has actually put out, what, several hundred million bucks to, to hosts because they canceled all the transactions for a lot of these folks. So to me, it's actually really interesting to say, hey, we don't want to raise equity. We don't want to lower our valuations. We're not dealing with the whole like cap table readjustment part. We're just going to keep on taking debt. And um, now it's a lot. Like it's not a subtle amount of money. It's it's billions. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how they kind of parlay that into a better financial picture as they try to IPO. I guess in twenty twenty one. I mean, maybe twenty twenty one. Maybe. I mean, if, if maybe. the economy begins to pick back up, Q four, and the airplanes right? exist, and the hotels exist, and tourists <laughs> are willing to deal with it, yeah. And people want to go. Like I don't know about you guys, but if they if they told me the economy is open tomorrow and I could leave my house and go do things. I'd be pretty reticent, honestly. You know, I got I got old family members that I talk to a lot in person, so I I, I worry about them. And so Airbnb is maybe just I don't know, Danny, war chesting to make sure that no matter what happens, it has enough cash to get through because it already had cash before, right? These this cash has repayment terms, right? And it has has interest rates, and it has mandatory minimums, and you know that's that's the thing. Like even in Stripe's case, where it's raising equity, I mean that that has a cost to the cap table, but that money doesn't have to literally be paid back on a fixed schedule. And right. I think you see this with Airbnb. You also see this with with SoftBank Vision Fund. You know, a lot of the money used in the Vision Fund was was debt, has a seven percent coupon year after year, and without any returns, you you have to find a magical way to sort of pay back that debt on time. And so I think, you know, if you're looking at Airbnb today, it really puts pressure, right? They have to perform at a very specific timeline. You know, that pressure may not be overwhelming, but it certainly is limiting the options you have going forward. Yeah. Also, I think that like travel and hospitality, when things resume to a new normal, are going to have some crazy insurance, you know, promises they have to make to to customers and to, to anyone who wants to travel. I think like people are going to want, you know, their insurance on if a pandemic happens again more than ever. So I imagine that Airbnb securing more capital for its war chest is, you know, it'll all go toward this, them preparing for the future. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, like I, I definitely am going to want to have the ability to cancel flights. Yeah, you know. I'm going to pay for it for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never had so much United and Southwest credit in my accounts that I do right now. And all the stuff I cancel. I, I have like a year's worth of flights just in just crappy United bucks or whatever the equivalent is over there. That's not great. Uh, I'm going to talk about a Utah round because I can. If you haven't checked the Utah startup market, it's a really cool place. A lot of companies have been doing well there. Two companies have raised big Series Cs lately. Um, sorry, Series, well, Series C and Series D. Lucid software makers of Lucid Chart just closed a $52 million Series D and they announced they have crossed 100 million ARR. And then uh, I think it was last week, Podium raised 125 million and crossed 100 million ARR. So we're seeing these two companies kind of vie for kind of the, to be the next Qualtrics. They're both growing really quickly. I have never used Lucid Chart, so I don't have a firm opinion about the software, but they actually have another product called Lucid Press. So they're kind of a holding company with two products now. They're a big deal, and I don't know. It's cool to watch. Well, we also had uh, we also had last week uh, Galileo, uh, or two weeks ago, we had Galileo sell to SoFi, which was a billion dollar exit for the Salt Lake City market. So, I mean, Utah, Utah's on fire. Yeah, and uh, fine. I'll, uh, one more, Danny. Uh, Every E V E R E E. Today, I wrote the story about them. They raised a ten million dollar Series A. They're doing cool payroll tech in Salt Lake as well. So, pretty much like Utah's cool now. I want to chime in too. I think I was covering this piece about layoff data, not to be negative, but you know, 
Secondary cities like Salt Lake City have been impacted by layoffs disproportionately in some ways because, you know, an HQ city in SF has a sales office in Salt Lake City and they shut that down. It's great to hear like homegrown talent on within Utah because I think it means that, it, you know, that startup market is now going to get more more employees and more talent. It shows durability. I mean, one thing that I was told about Chicago when I was kind of coming, when I went to college in Chicago, and it's when I kind of was in a tech scene for the first time. And they were talking about how in like in 2011, 2012, how like in 2008, the whole Chicago tech scene just kind of dried up and blew away like tumbleweed. And Utah is definitely of the sufficient scale and size and health to not do that, no matter how bad this gets. And that's, that's encouraging, you know? It means that it won't just be eight people in uh, in the Bay Area. There's gonna be a lot more hotspots in the country uh, where tech talent aggregates and comes together. Oh, good. This is I'm looking forward to this all show. Danny, why are there too many companies working on college debt? <laughs> so, so this is a strange day in which both Alex and I wrote funding announcements for companies going after the student loan market. Actually, slightly differently, thankfully. I actually have now covered two companies. So the, cover, the company I covered was a company called uh, Savvy, spelled S-A-V-I inspired by the word savvy, S-A-V-V-Y, which raised $6 million. It's a public benefit corp. And, and in many ways was similar to a company I wrote about last year called Summer, which had raised a 10 million Series A, also a public benefit corp, also focused on making student loans easier for people to understand. And, and both of those folks go after the student loan process. So after you graduate and get a job, the goal of these is to help you sort of manage your finances and their subscription based. But you, you had, uh, Alex, you focus on a company called Frank, yeah. Which I got to be honest is like one of the best names I've actually heard in a long time. Like ask Frank. Like I actually enjoyed this a lot. Like I don't know why. It's just like Frank, um, and uh, it's a little bit different though, right? Well, I think that. Oh, sorry, not to not to butt in, Alex. But I I feel like a lot of the like financial health services have female names. Like Erica for Bank of America, I think is is the name. And th- there was an article I read a while ago about how they've like unnecessarily like feminized financial health apps. And mm. I was kind of happy to see Frank. And that's the note I wanted to make on it. <laughs> I mean, Goldman Sachs has Marcus. Alexa, Cortana. It's always like Siri. the helper. Yeah. The helper yes. is feminized. So I was like, oh, Frank, you're helping. Thank you. All right. Even the voice in James Bond, James Bond's car in that one James Bond movie is a woman. And then Q says like, I thought you responded better to a woman's voice or something like that. This has annoying. been going on for a while. Yeah. Um, Anyways, tell us about Frank, Alex. <laughs> oh, right. Frank. Uh, so Frank is, if, if Savvy and these other companies are on the back end trying to help you service debt, Frank wants to help you avoid getting debt. And I talked to the CEO, Charlie, and she was telling me about how there's a lot of people that get trapped in debt that don't end up with degrees, for example, and they end up borrowing a lot of money and they don't get a degree and they end up really stuck. Cause if you go to like a, if you borrow money and go to like a two year school and only stick around for a year and don't make it out, you don't have higher earnings potential. You don't. And so you end up with debt to service with no ability to generate more income. And that's brutal. It's a trap. And so, Frank, what it does is it helps you file your FAFSA. FAFS, FAFS, FAFSA. Thank Very you. Good. I haven't, it's been a while since I applied to college. That's why you got to talk to Frank about this sort of stuff. Frank, Frank knows the Frank acronym. got you. <laughs> don't talk to Alex. <laughs> yeah, don't talk to me. I'm a terrible resource for this. And they help you plug into scholarships and other things to help you kind of... Uh, you get as much aid to yourself as you can to lower your debt load. So when you do leave, not only can you climb out of debt quickly, but you haven't been under as much pressure while you're in school. And I, I thought that was a really cool idea. They raised a five million quote interim strategic round that Chegg took part in. Uh, Chegg, of course, is a public company in the ed tech space, famous for uh, renting textbooks. I think, if I recall, That's back yeah. in the back of my head. But Frank is a bit like the TurboTax, as TechCrunch wrote back in their last round for college money. I dig it. 
it'd be great though if we had like a better you know national federal system so college kids couldn't end up 100k in debt you know in like civilized countries but uh you know i guess in this country we'll do it this way which is better than nothing to be clear but what an issue to have all right we have time for one more thing and uh, I want I want Tosh you to give us some highlights from the survey you ran on VCs about edtech. I care about the space. I think it's really cool. You talked to a lot of people. If there were a couple of highlights to pull out, to have everyone kind of chew on. What was uh, the most eye catching? Armand and I put together this edtech survey. Extra Crunch has been doing this a lot. We get a group of investors together, ask them the same questions, and compare and contrast their responses. Edtech has moved into the spotlight and therefore has moved into my to-do list due to the massive shift to remote learning in the in the past month and investors have you know shared a wide range of i told you so to you know before one investor i believe from lightspeed said that you know they were doing 30% of their time in edtech and they're doing 100% of their time in edtech wow. yeah so to me that that tells me that we will hopefully see more more deals in a sector that has been traditionally underfunded and has really long sales cycles due to the sheer nature that people are only thinking about education, at least in the K through 12 and higher ed space in September. So um, I think we're going to see some some fresher news there. I also want to call to a point that I heard about how some of the stronger ed tech companies will always be on the B2C side versus the B2B side. If you're selling to kids and teach and parents, it's easier to get in their wallets than get to the wallets of a district. Definitely harsher budgets due to the economic downturn. Yesterday on on, on Extra Crunch Live, we had uh, Bradley Tusk from Tusk Ventures talking about this. And one of the questions we asked was around ed tech, because yeah. obviously he's in a lot of regulated spaces and he hates it. And I, I asked him and, and Jordan Crook, our, our fellow managing editor here, asked him, like, don't you think the K through 12 is a much better place today because of everything going on? And he's like, no. Like, uh, he's 100%, like, doesn't think a lot of things are going to change, thinks it's going to basically double down, that a lot of parents have really learned the basically the disadvantages of online education. They're going to want their kids going back to p- physical public schools and, and, you know, physical schools as quickly as possible. Well, yeah, when I, I tuned in and I heard that and I was like, gotta go ask all the edtech investors. I know what they think about Bradley Tusk's comments, especially because Tusk Ventures is so based on this concept of investing in startups that are trying to break into highly regu- regulated industries. I think the way, again, yeah, the workaround in that is p- uh, investors betting on pitching to parents as homework helpers, like as augmenting the experience. Uh, one investor put it as, you know, no one will ever argue that remote learning is ideal for K through 12. It should always be a tool. It should never be the the necessity. Well, what I've heard from absolutely no one uh, so far is that they're like, you know what? This has been so much fun. I love having my kids home all the time. I'm going to do homeschool forever. Zero people have said that. But I do think that having tooling is going to be a, a bigger market. And that's why I think the edtech space does have room to grow. Disagreeing with Mr. Tusk a little bit. But I think you're right that it's going to be from the parental side, not the district side. Right. I, I do think, though, we may see some districts pick up some more basic tech for remote learning. I mean, because I think now they've been forced to at least know they may need it. And that may lead to some contracts. Maybe like even the stuff they put like having the mothballs just back there. So if they need this, they can pull it out and, and do that. I think it'll be both hardware and software when we when we go back. Like they're not they're going to want to work with an edtech company that has an hardware element, but can easily also have a software element to make it have more staying power. And Alex, to your point, we are seeing some some districts bring on edtech companies. I wrote this week about Labster, which creates a 
virtual STEM lab for students to do experiments in. It signed a deal with all of California's community colleges, which is about 115 colleges, 2.1 million students. They are making a profit from it, from the deal. So they're making money from it, even though it's heavily discounted. And I got really excited about it, nerded out about it, maybe a little too much because I thought it was the first time we're seeing the surge of usage turn into actual money versus freebies. So I was hype about it. And I think that tension between usage and money is the problem with ed tech in general because uh, it is the slowest, slowest, slowest cycle. But we have to leave it there. Tosh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Danny. Absolutely. And I want to apologize because 36 divided by four is nine and not eight. All right. And on that note, oh my this God. has been You're equity. Kidding. This is why we don't do math equations on this show. I didn't even we, catch this. I, I, I I'm like the Brian it. Williams of, of equity. You just you just say it out loud. You're like 348 billion divided by a billion is $348 million. And somehow you invented six zeros on the end there. I, I'm vaguely offended by that analogy, but not not too much. Um, but I will say there's the things that are banned on equity are our predictions and now math. We're going to add one to the list. Um, but anyways, guys, thank you very much. We'll be back Monday morning. Equity is here as always. Peace. <laughs>